Today on the Tuesday Theology Edition of the Scottsdale Podcast, Pastor Jeff Poteet is laying out the doctrine of the person of Christ. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word, so through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. I want to welcome you to our Tuesday Theology, where we are uh, giving today a, a recap of what we studied uh, this most recent Tuesday night uh, in chapter 14 of Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine book uh, on the person of Christ. And now this is an, an essential doctrine for us as believers um, because it lays out for us who it is that we worship and why, uh, why we have salvation in him. And today, as we recap this, we're going to just kind of go through and define what that is, what the person of Christ is, and then also scriptural support uh, for where we find that in the Bible. Uh, we believe that the person of Christ, the doctrine of the person of Christ, can be summarized as followed. Uh, Jesus Christ was fully God, that is 100% God, and fully man, that is 100% man, in one person, and he will be so forever. Now, uh, this, there's, extensive, uh, there's extensive biblical information for this uh, definition uh, all across Scripture. And today, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try to break it down into three very simple and uh, strategic categories. First, uh, we'll be dealing with the humanity of Jesus, that, that he is fully man. And we're also going to then spend time talking about the fact that he is fully God, or we're going to discuss his deity. And then lastly, we're going to attempt to show how his deity and humanity are united in one person, that is the person of Christ. Now, what do we find as it relates to biblical data, as it relates to his humanity? First, we see um, in his the virgin birth. The virgin birth is the first place that we see um, his humanity uh, delivered to us in the Bible. We see this in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, which helps us to see uh, in, even in Mary's life, she had not known a man uh, in an intimate way. And so uh, Jesus was conceived supernaturally by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, overshadowing her and for her to conceive in a supernatural way. Now, this is, this is a very important doctrine for us uh, to understand that Jesus was conceived supernaturally, not by the same means that everyone else is. Uh, there are a couple of things that this helps us to see in, in relation to him. First, it helps us to see uh, that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. It's not something that derives from human will or initiative. Uh, it is something that God uh, brings about through his sovereign and perfect providential care for his world. We also see uh, that the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. And now, it would have been possible for God, uh, supposedly, uh, to been possible for him uh, to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and then just deliver him to earth one day. But this would have removed some of the, um, the humanity-ness of Jesus, that he would not have gone through the exact same processes that we have gone through as it relates to being human. We also see in this uh, that the virgin birth uh, made possible Christ's true humanity to exist without inherited sin. Uh, as you can remember back to chapter 13, we noted uh, that all human beings uh, everywhere have an inherited guilt and corrupt moral nature that is, that is derived from our first uh, father, Adam. But, but Christ, but Jesus, did not have a human father. 
this helps us to see that this inherited guilt, uh, this descent from Adam is partially interrupted. And so Jesus in his being can be truly human and at the same time not inherit a sinful nature. We see that this is so important for our understanding of salvation. Um, but we also see uh, that Jesus, not only was he conceived supernatural, not only do we see him uh, physically human, we see him uh, as it relates to human weaknesses and limitations. Uh, we see this in his life, that he had a human body. Uh, in fact, he had a body just like yours and just like mine. Uh, and this body was subject to hunger. It was subject to being tired. Uh, it was subject to being weary from long days. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 2 uh, that he was born just like all babies are born. And we see that even his mother wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. We see that he had to learn and grow, just like other children do. Jesus uh, learned and uh, grew in wisdom and in knowledge, uh, as just like you and I did. Uh, he had to learn uh, how to walk. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to count. Uh, he had to learn how to do different activities uh, in his life. We see uh, that as far as Jesus' human body is concerned, it was like ours in every respect before his resurrection and after his resurrection it was still a human body with flesh and bones, but it was a body that was made perfect, the kind of body that we will have when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead as well. We also see that Jesus had a human mind. He increased in wisdom uh, according to Luke 2.52. Uh, he went through that learning process just like every other human child does. We also see that Jesus had a human soul and human emotions. We see this in several places in scripture, which helps us to see uh, Jesus' humanity. And in places we see where he was troubled in spirit. Uh, we see uh, in scripture where he marveled at the faith of particular individuals. And one that we uh, know that our children love to, uh, love to memorize in very uh, early on because it is one of the shortest passages of scripture that Jesus showed emotion when he wept uh, for his friend Lazarus who had, been, who had recently died. We also see uh, Jesus's humanity, uh, that in the Bible, he is affirmed as being completely sinless. The New Testament affirms that Jesus was fully human just as we are, and uh, it also affirms that Jesus was different in one important respect. That is, he never sinned. He never sinned. He never committed a sin during his lifetime uh, or ever. He has never com committed a sin, nor will he ever commit sin. The sinlessness of Jesus is taught throughout the New Testament. We see it in, uh, in Luke's gospel whenever Satan comes to tempt Jesus, uh, whenever he was unsuccessful uh, in trying to uh, tempt Jesus, he departed from him until an opportune time. We see it in other parts of the Gospels, uh, but we see it most clearly reflected as we look at the epistles, the, the writings that come subsequent to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, where, uh, where doctrine is being defined, where the Apostle Paul or Peter are uh, communicating to churches of, of the, the reality of Jesus' nature. Um, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, that Jesus is him who knew no sin. Uh, we also know that Peter writes that he committed no sin, nor was any uh, guile found on his lips. We see that John, uh, the apostle, writes in 1 John that in him there is no sin, in 1 John 3, 5. So it's hard to deny then that the sinlessness of Christ is clearly taught in Scripture. 
In spite of uh, all the things that you may hear in the world, we see from the Bible very clearly that Scripture teaches that Jesus was sinless in his life. Now, we might wonder, why is this necessary? Why is this doctrine of the humanity of Jesus necessary? Well, one, we know that it counteracts a heresy that was uh, being uh, supposed during the first century church. Uh, the Apostle John uh, writes to uh, the churches in 1 John dealing with a heresy that, that wants to communicate that Jesus just appeared to be human, that he wasn't really a human being just like everyone else. Um, but he writes to us, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is of God, is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So in essence, John is saying that anyone who says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is antichrist in their theology. They are promoting an antichrist theology. It is not in keeping with what Jesus is trying to show us in his life and in his teaching. We also see uh, that it's important for us as it relates to our salvation. It's vitally important in two particular areas. One, uh, Jesus in his sinless life, in his truly human life, uh, is our representative as it relates to obedience. As we noted in our chapter on sin, Adam served as a representative for us in the Garden of Eden. And through his disobedience, God uh, counted as guilty everyone after him as well. Every being, human being born after him from his line uh, is counted guilty because of his original sin. We see uh, that in, uh, in, in Romans uh, chapter 5, Paul writes this, Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness, that's Jesus' life, uh, leads, leads to acquittal and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So Jesus had to be man in order to obey in our place. He had to obey perfectly so that the righteous fulfillment of God's law would be fulfilled in us as well. So not only does he serve as our representative, obedi representative for obedience, but he also uh, serves to be a substitute sacrifice. If Jesus had not been man, he could have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due to us as humans. The author of Hebrews tells us that surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like us in every way, uh, to, so to be, he can become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become a man because he had to redeem man. He didn't come to redeem angels or other creatures. He came to redeem people. He came to die in their place. So this is uh, the reason why Jesus' humanity is necessary. It's necessary for him to be our representative for obedience and also to pay for our sins as a substitute sacrifice. Uh, this is the great doctrines of what Jesus' uh, humanity accomplishes for us. But we also notice from Scripture that Jesus is fully God. So he's fully human in every way, and he is fully God in every way. We see that the, uh, the complete teaching about Jesus must affirm not only his full humanity, but also his full divinity. We see that there are direct scriptural claims to Jesus's divine nature. The word God or theos is used of Christ uh, throughout the New Testament. We see this over and over and over again, where the writers refer to Jesus as God. And Jesus, even uh, in, his, uh, in his challenges against the Pharisees, they, they recognized that his, uh, his claim was to be that of God, and they called him a blasphemer because of that. 
Not only do we see the word theos used, we also see the word kyrios used of Christ, which is a word that refers to him as Lord. Now this can be a, uh, a polite address to a superior, something like what we would say maybe to someone being called sir, uh, but we also see that it can mean master. And so whenever we see this word uh, used in the Old Testament uh, Greek words, it is also uh, translated for the word Yahweh. So uh, the word kyrios is used to translate the name of the Lord uh, in the Greek Old Testament. Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader would have heard this word and, and associated it with God. Now, there are many instances where uh, the Lord is used of Christ, uh, and it can be used in that same sense as we look to the Old Testament. We see that John uh, the Baptist is the one who cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We also see that Jesus is identified as the Lord of the Old Testament when the Pharisees uh, ask about Psalm 110.1, where Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, the impetus or the force of this statement God uh, is that the God and Father uh, said to God, the Son, David's Son, sit at my right hand. The Pharisees knew that he was talking about himself and identifying himself as the one worthy of the Old Testament title, Lord. So we see that Jesus is, is, deter, or is defined as Lord in the New Testament as well. But there are other claims to deity that we see in the New Testament. Uh, we see the word God and Lord used of Jesus Christ, but we also see other uh, opportunities in the New Testament. Uh, first, we see in uh, John chapter 8, verse 57, where the Pharisees and the, the Jewish opponents were coming to Jesus. And they said, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? But Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And this is a reminder for us of that Old Testament language where uh, in Exodus, whenever Moses said uh, to God, who shall I tell them has sent me to speak? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. So Jesus, again, referring to himself as the I am or to himself as God. We also see uh, later in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to in Re Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the sovereign ruler over all of history. Now, what are some of the evidence that Jesus possesses divine attributes? What are some of the attributes that we see in Jesus' life that help us to see, no, he really is backing up the claim of divinity with his power, with the work that he accomplishes? There are just a few uh, that you've noticed in your reading, but also that we can summarize here. One, he demonstrated omnipotence. He was all-powerful in calming the storm uh, at the sea with a word. We see that he feeds thousands and thousands of people with very, very minimal food given to him. He breaks it into uh, multitudes of, of food and meal for people that were there who were hungry. He changes water into wine. He casts out demons. There are so many things that show us his omnipotence. We also see that he asserts his eternity. Uh, whenever he says, before Abraham was, I am, he's, he's, he's reminding us that he is the eternally existent God. We also see that he is omniscient. Uh, he is the one who knows people's thoughts as they think them. Even right now, he even knows what you are thinking as you're watching this video. His, his knowledge was more extensive than the, the information that, that he could receive just by natural input. He could see to the emotions and the heart of man. We also see that he is omnipresent uh, in his life. Um, whenever we see where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Or uh, whenever in the Great Commission, he tells us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is one of his attributes. 
Um, we see also that Jesus is uh, clearly possesses divine sovereignty. Uh, whenever he uh, forgives people of their sins, whenever he, he addresses people and he forgives them of their sins, we also see that he uh, is worthy to be worshiped. Um, we recognize from Isaiah's uh, writing, the prophet Isaiah, that God will not share his glory with any other being. And yet we see clearly in the New Testament where Jesus receives worship and, is, and we are commanded in many ways to worship him. Uh, we see in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, God commands the angels to worship Christ, where we read, when the firstborn is brought into the world, he says, God says, let all God's angels worship him. So we see clearly that God's desire and design is for Jesus to receive worship. This helps us to see uh, that Jesus is clearly fully divine. And this is important for us. Uh, it is absolutely important for us because apart from his divinity, there would be no availability for salvation. It is only God who can save. We've seen that over and over in scripture, but only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for the sins of those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing the full wrath of a holy God. We also know that salvation is from the Lord and the whole message of the scripture is designed to show that no human being, no creature uh, could ever save a man. Only God himself could do that. And we also recognize that uh, for someone to be, uh, to be our mediator, he must be fully God and fully man. He can't just be one or the other to mediate between the two parties. And Jesus accomplishes both to bring us back to God and also to reveal God fully to us. Now we see that he, uh, from the Bible, we see clearly that we see times of him uh, being taught, uh, taught to us as his humanity and also times where we see clearly his divinity. But the, the thing that we must understand is that he's not uh, one sometime and one some other time as if he exists in two persons. No, both natures, fully God and fully man, exist forever in the one person of Jesus Christ. This is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. It sounds fancy, but it's really a simple term that means personal. It is a personal union of Jesus's two natures into one person. It may sound uh, hard to understand, but the, the, really the gist of it, uh, if we had to break it down into one sentence, is this. Jesus has two complete natures in one person, one fully human and one fully divine. We know that in the history of, uh, of the church, there have been multiple ways in which people have tried to uh, describe this for us. Uh, there, and these oftentimes lead us to heretical views. As you've read, there is one view called Apollinarianism, where it teaches that Jesus had a human body but not and a, and a human mind, but not a uh, the mind of Christ or divine God. This may this would help us to see that it, that they just taught that that he was a body and God kind of invaded that body rather than seeing him as two uh, complete uh, complete persons or complete natures, where you have a, a human body and a divine kind of matched together like two halves to make one whole, rather than saying that there were two fully uh, complete natures in one person. You also see uh, a heresy called uh, Nestorianism. It's a doctrine where there are two separate persons of Christ. And we see that this is an inaccurate view because Jesus never identifies himself uh, as two people. He always describes himself as I or me whenever he's talking uh, to others. So he, he, he understood himself as a unified being, as one person, as one being. We also see one, a third uh, a, a 
misunderstanding or, or misrepresentation called uh, monophytism or Eutychianism. This is a view that Christ only had one nature and that uh, this one nature was a mixture of uh, God and man kind of put together in one body and mixed up to where there's no, there's no uniqueness in either one of those natures. Um, you can think of it as putting two natures together and then coming out with a third kind of nature rather than there being a complete uh, human nature, a complete uh, divine nature in one person. But the Council of Chalcedon in uh, AD 451 uh, brought this together and, and helped people to understand that Jesus has always existed uh, in uh, that he will, he exists as a God and man, 100% God, 100% man in one person. Um, we see this over as we relate to this definition from uh, the Council of Chalcedon. It's been taken as the standard orthodox definition of biblical teaching on the person of Christ um, by various groups along Christian history. It's a long quote, and I'm, it's going to be found on the screen. Uh, it says, When we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead. It reminds us that he is still part of the triune God. He's not become less God because he has taken on humanity. He is consubstantial with us according to manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. That means his nature as, a, as God is always preserved as God, and his nature as man is always preserved as man. One does not try to overthrow the other in his life. In concerning in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning, concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. We see this in several places in the Bible, uh, where we see both a specific text on Christ's deity and humanity. One helps us to see uh, that uh, sometimes we see this in, in ways where um, the scripture teaches us that one nature does things that the other nature does not do, uh, where we can clearly see a difference uh, in, uh, in his activity. One, we can think that Jesus was 30 years old, and yet we also know from John chapter one that Jesus has eternally existed. So he is 30 years old uh, in a human body, and at the same time, he has eternally existed. In his human nature, Jesus uh, was weak and tired, but in his, his divine nature, he's omnipotent. He never tires or becomes hungry. We see uh, in a similar way, Jesus in his human nature died, a real death on the cross. His real body was put into a tomb. And at the same time, we know that God is eternal, that he doesn't die. And so we see a difference even in those which help us to see that it is a divine nature and a human nature in one person in one person. 
We also see that anything that either nature does, the person of Christ does. So we see times in which we, we recognize differences, but then we also see times in which we see uh, the, the clear unity of Christ. We must uh, affirm that uh, this is true of the human and divine nature. What is true of the human and divine nature is always true of the person of Christ. Thus, for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I am, he doesn't say, before Abraham was, my divine nature existed. He says, before, uh, before Abraham was, I am, because he is free to talk about anything done by his divine nature alone or his human nature alone as something that he, the person, the one person of Jesus, has done. Now, as we uh, go through these things, we might come to a challenge in our mind to say, wow, this is just, it's a, it is a mind-blowing exercise to think about two complete natures in one person. The reminder and encouragement for us uh, is this, that in this, we are, we are doing theology, okay? Uh, we are doing theology. And in that, we are, we are seeking to, uh, we are seeking an exercise in faith, seeking understanding. And in doing theology for us, we must remind, remember that Scripture is always our final authority, and so whenever we come to these, uh, these, these um, magnificent doctrines and, and when our minds are stretched, uh, sometimes whenever we try to run down those rabbit holes and we begin to develop maybe even our own opinions about these things, we always must check those opinions with Scripture to make sure that Scripture is acting as our final authority. Any warrant and, uh, for belief about Christ, we must believe uh, what Scripture says. It is our authority uh, simply because it says it. Right? Whenever we read Scripture, we trust implicitly that what God tells us is true. Uh, this is what scripture, mean, scripture means. Uh, whenever scripture speaks, we believe what it says and where it doesn't speak, we don't seek to formulate our own authoritative opinion. We must come to scripture uh, with an implicit trust that what God is telling us is true. We also recognize that God does not disclose nor is he required to disclose everything to us. Uh, we have finite minds and even in these finite minds, uh, we recognize that there are unknowns for us in this world. Uh, and as finite creatures, this will always be our reality. And so as we come to Scripture, we must trust the Lord whenever he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that there are hidden things that belong to him. But he gives us all that we need to know uh, to honor him with our lives and to pursue life and godliness. As we conclude our time here, we just want to go back to that reminder at the end of this discussion, it may be easy for us to lose sight of what is actually taught in Scripture. This is an amazing miracle, and by far the most amazing miracle in the Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever, so that the infinite God became one person with finite man. This will remain for eternity, the most profound miracle and the mo most profound mystery in all the universe. Thank you for tuning in with us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.